Welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host in the city of Chicago. Joining us is Jed Brewer. Salutations. Oh. Joining us from 1980s Overnight Radio, Jed Brewer. <laughs> also with us, making us try for a return to the podcast, Lee Younger. I'm back. Thanks for having me, fellas. Absolutely. We have a great show lined up for you. We've got some great questions. We're going to... um talk about uh, one of our favorite authors on the show who recently passed away, Frederick B. Here, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Got some great questions you guys. But first, I must declare a musical emergency. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. And not the normal kind of Christian musical emergency, which is, <laughs> you know, the people who put out a lot of Christian music. And it's emergency-like qualities. But no, and we this happened a few weeks ago, but we had to wait to get Lee back on the show to properly cover it, I uh, read to you a headline from onstageblog.com Uh-oh. where you get all your fine um, musical and other Broadway-related news. Texas Church illegally performs Hamilton with anti-LGBTQ messaging. Nope. <laughs> wow. Gosh. Oh. So if you're not aware, um, so you're probably aware of Hamilton and uh, very popular. You know, with the Disney, with the the many many tickets, with the playing at the White House, um, and then there's a church called the Door Christian Fellowship Ministries in McAllen, Texas, who thought mm. they would put on a version of Hamilton. Uh, now, and you may think, well, I went to a high school where they did Oklahoma, or you know, West Side Story, or Into the Woods, or. You know, Hello, Dolly. Absolutely. Community theater, these kind of things, this happens. But there's a, there's a very, very strict licensing procedure you have to go through to do You have that. to pay money. Yes, because it turns out it costs a lot of money to put on a Broadway show, and they're pretty uh, uptight about holding all the performance rights to that. Yeah, And they, they also want to make sure that whoever performs it performs the ro- the words they wrote. Yes. And the music they wrote um, to preserve the themes that they were trying to express. Yes. Now that is another very important point because you may have mentioned we recently covered the church in Canada that did like their own weird um, Easter plays with incredibly, obviously copyrighted characters uh, from Marvel and Star Wars and whatnot. But we did go through, and it turns out that they were, A, changing the names enough to be maybe legally distinct. Who knows? Kinda. And also, not putting clips everywhere. And that's yeah. because there are few things in this world you want to get less than you want to get sued by Disney. Yeah. <laughs> There's a passage in the scriptures where Jesus tells people, do not be afraid of he who killed the body but the one who can kill the body and destroy the soul. Now he's probably speaking about the righteous judgment of God, but he might as well also be speaking about the <laughs> legal representation of the Walt Disney corporation. You know what? Fair. Yeah. I'm not saying it's a correct interpretation. I'm just saying from a literary standpoint, you could apply that phrase. Look to quote, to quote Elliot Gould's character from oceans 11. Cause he'll kill you. And then it'll go to work on you. (laughs) Yes, this is absolutely true. 
So not only do we put on a totally illegal version of Hamilton at a church in McAllen, Texas, they also change a bunch of Matt, stuff. Doesn't that book say? Doesn't that book say, "Thou shalt not steal"? Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot going on here. One is, uh, you snuck in an LG, a anti-LGBT sermon after the the show. The pastor uh, at the conclusion of the show, a pastor delivers. I love that they didn't even put his name in the thing delivers a sermon that includes anti-LGBTQ messaging. The pastor states, maybe you struggle with alcohol, with drugs, with homosexuality. Maybe you struggle with things, your other things in life, your finances, whatever. God can help you tonight. He wants to forgive you for your sins. That was a weird uh-huh. list. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, um, maybe you've committed genocide. Maybe you're diabetic. I don't know. I'm just picking things at random. It's all great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe you have credit card debt. Maybe you kill the hobo. Who knows? <laughs> it's it's sin bingo. <laughs> Singo. <laughs> oh gosh. Now that is a now that is a production. You, you hand out the sin bingo cards during your small group. Like it's going to get honest in here today. <laughs> Do we have any people here tonight who are left-handed? God can forgive you, brother. <laughs> I. I also like if for some reason you're forced to go to a more legalistic church than you would like, maybe it's you know a new one, maybe you have to go to your parents or whatever, you can make your own sin bingo card. And yeah. Just just kind of you and a couple of friends, just as he's mentioning stuff, just like he mentioned left-handed. That's me. Bingo. Yeah. I love the idea of like I I'm I'm in the sin bingo game and I've got that person sitting next to me that won't stop talking to me, and I'm like, stop it, Frankie. I think he just said uh, charge usury, and I've got that one. And if I get that one, I get a single. <laughs> Dude, what would a pastor do, just as a thought experiment, if he's going along, particularly if he's kind of getting worked up? Like, I'm not talking about like a reformed sermon where he wants to tell you about the Hittites. I'm talking about like a fire and brimstone. He's really go to town. If you just stood up in your seat and screamed the word bingo 10 minutes into that sermon. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's also, if you're thinking about leaving your your overly legalistic church, in the middle of a sermon, just stand up, yell bingo, hold a, a sheet of paper up, and then run out and never talk to any of them again. <laughs> Fantastic. I think I think people in these congregations should go ahead and start passing out the uh, the not authorized sin bingo cards and just see what happens. I love it. I think the pastor should start handing them out because you're obviously not going to change the thing you say, and this is a way to get people to pay attention. Wow. You want 30 Good. minutes of people's undivided attention, little sin bingo. Here's what you do you make gambling the free space because we're all doing that. Because <laughs> the payout are. comes at the end. Yes. Oh, gosh. Now, once again, we've gone on a weird uh, tangent that is less dumb than the real thing that happened. <laughs> Back <laughs> to the unauthorized homophobic Hamilton. <laughs> Homophobic Hamilton. I mean, you just put that on a T, Matt. That was amazingly well done. Immigrants, they heterosexually get the job done. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, uh, to this point, not only did we did we cram in a sermon at the end of your... And Hamilton, not a short musical. So, they did Hamilton, and then they added a sermon to that. Right. Um. A couple other things, and you can find clips of this online, and we'll maybe I'll drop some audio in here. Scoundrel, orphan, son of a harlot. Rain. 
stop running from God, Alexander? His word says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Just whipping in some weird Christian stuff, as you might expect. Now, some of it, uh, so, you know, weird for a, a player to do a church. There's a whole song in there about uh, a guy who's considering, should I do marital infidelity or not? And decides, yeah, let's have a little marital infidelity. <laughs> And I think they just kind of fade to black that in the middle. I think like they just do like the first two lines to say no to this. And then it's just like scene missing. Wow. <laughs> Dear Theodosia, adultery is bad. That's Matt. That's like in one of the recent Muppet movies when they decided they wanted to do uh, uh, smells like teen spirit. So they just had Beaker sing the entire song. <laughs> Now that's how you get around copyright issues in a creative yep. and artistically fulfilling way. Uh, so what are the other ones we had? Um, there, you, you may notice if you've, if you've listened to Hamilton and seen it, that there is a, a line in one of the early songs that's very obviously about bestiality. And the writer of it has confirmed that that is what it is referring to and was surprised more people didn't say it. Um, they changed part of that line, but not the horses part. Huh. Weird. He says it doesn't say lock up your daughters and horses. It says lock up something else, harlots, I think, and horses. And then I can't find online what the other half of that is, where it talks about corsets and intercourse. But I have to imagine they change that too. But weird to change everything about that couplet except the horses part. Is all I'm saying. That is odd. Yeah, that's that's like the Parks and Rec bit where um, <laughs> Andy's wife encourages him to change the song "Sex Hair" and he changes it to "Sex Bears." <laughs> because <laughs> he has to play at a little kid's birthday party he's like it's not the the word hair that was the problem yeah you didn't <laughs> you didn't really get all of that one um we've they've also got that they changed some things of just just randomly so the the end where they're kind of you know he he dies spoiler alert for hamilton um, what oh my i didn't gosh, say that but someone it was to say dies well uh, uh, spoiler it they probably all died at this point but in the show oh, <laughs> dang a, it king in the show a crucial <laughs> character has died and they're doing the end where they do the little wrap up and i guess it's his wife's character saying something about you know it's before she kind of burns george washington and reminds us all oh yeah he really liked slavery weird um which is a <laughs> but she's talked about founding an orphanage which is cool you know hamilton orphan all that for some reason in this they just uh slide in she, I guess the original line is something like, I, I helped to raise hundreds of children to see them growing up. That's nice. And it just changes it to, I led hundreds of children to Jesus. Um, which is really weird on two fronts. One of them is th that didn't happen. Right. And the other one is, really, building an orphanage is not enough for you people? Yeah. No. Nope. <laughs> oh, man. I built an orphanage. And cared for hundreds of orphans. That's literally a thing in the New Testament. There's two groups of people that you have to look after above all. And one of the, this is a widow looking after orphans. This is the whole package. And they're like, that doesn't seem very Christian. Can we make it so that she like made them listen to a sermon before she gave them food or something? <laughs> yeah. And to no one's surprise, uh, in, I think it's in the, the song he has with his son right before the scene. Uh, Hamilton has a, a literal come to Jesus moment before he goes off to get shot. Again, spoiler alert, my apologies. <laughs> 
If I throw away my shot, is this how you remember me? What if this bullet is my legacy? What is a legacy? It's knowing you repented and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets men free. You sent your sinless son of man on Calvary to die for me. You let me make a difference. A place where even orphan immigrants can leave their fingerprints. And rise up. Oh, gosh. And here, here, as we round this out, and I definitely want to hear any closing thoughts that you don't have, but here's, here's my main top line question on this. Why did you do this? Yes. And here's what I mean by that. You have people like Hamilton. You have people in McAllen, Texas, who apparently want to hear a sermon at the end of something about how maybe you struggle with, um, you know, physical violence and maybe you're drunk or maybe you're gay. I, what's the overlap of these two groups of people you're trying to hit with this? Yeah. Who wants that? And who wants that homophobic sermon so much? They're going to sit through two hours of music, hip hop musical. <laughs> and who wants to see who can't afford Disney plus and wants to see a bootleg amateur production of Hamilton so much so that they'll sit through all the weird changes. Yeah. And the amateur performance of it. As you said, Matt, here's the thing. They didn't get cast in a play. Now they have megachurch money and they just get to make their own play. So that's what we're doing now. If you want to look up something that is truly existentially strange, because most of it is exactly what Lee's describing there, you know, and we talked about it with that, the Canadian church, you know, these clearly some people wanted to just put on a show and they're, they're, this is an avenue through which to do that. There are clearly some people in this Hamilton production who do not, do not seem to want to be there. And mm-hmm. one of them is the poor guy they have playing George the third who man is his heart, not in it. And that is a very odd part to be doing reluctantly. <laughs> yeah, that feels like a pretty, it'll be like a pretty fun part to play. You get to be really cheeky. You get to be, you know, you get to have some comedic lines. You get to raise the level, you know, get to kind of repair scope up where you're going to let out, let off a little steam here in the, in a very, you know, dynamic and emotional show. But if you're like, oh man, they're just making me do this because I'm in a small group with, you know, Ted <laughs> or whatever. It was this or volunteer in the nursery. I stand by my choice. <laughs> But you can look it up. It's on Instagram. There are clips of it on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. A lot of them uh, have, du- apparently a lot of people in the uh, online community have dubbed this show Scamilton, which is pretty good. Wow. Well, that's very good. That's very good. And in some way that feels like some kind of uh, cosmic justice for the, uh, for the whole project. Yeah. yeah. On that note, we will declare emergency off. If you'd like to, as I have this week, spend some time thinking about what other weird bootleg Christianized musicals you'd like to put out there in the world? Um, it, it's a fun way to it's a fun way to pass a little time while you're waiting for a phone call or in line or something. Just thinking about like I don't know what weird stuff would they do to West Side Story or you know it's the Phantom of the Opera but she missionary dates him oh. and by the <laughs> end he comes back around. Little Shop of Horrors. Wait, no, no. Little you Shop can't of do Blessings. 
<laughs> oh, that's very good. That's very, very good. Yes, yes. We're going to move on to our first question here. If you have this all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways you can touch this. Or you can scroll down to your episode description and click the links that you find there. Our first question comes in this week and says, Some older Christians like to talk about the end times and how soon Christ will come back, but the way they talk about it doesn't sound like a good thing. How concerned should I be about stuff like that? A good question. We covered we covered end time stuff uh, on the show before, but it's always a thing I think that is uh, good to to come back to. A because uh, every podcast is somebody's first, hopefully, and also this keeps coming back in weird ways. You know, it comes it comes up when the people they when the person they don't like wins the election. It comes up when the person they do like wins the election. It comes up when gas prices go up. It comes up when there's when there's news. And it's always seemed to have a a new spin on it. I do. This is an interesting detail of, cause we've always talked about the, there's definitely some uh, denominations and faith traditions and eras where this has been a big deal, but this kind of um, breaking this out by an age group, I think is an interesting thing because uh, we all lived through a time where back when there used to be this thing called the Christian bookstore. Um, it definitely had uh, the apocalypse is going to happen section and that was the largest and most profitable, probably what, in from like 1992 to 1997. Yep, a whole thing happening there. So it's a very interesting uh, lens to put on that. But I also really like the ending of you know how concerned should I be about all this? I think that's a great question. And Jed, where would we start off with it? Man, it's a great question. And whatever fear, anxiety that you're experiencing, I'm sorry you're experiencing it. For what it's worth. Um, Church people scared the crap out of me when I was a kid with all of this. So uh, if there's any part of that that's where you're at, I'm sorry. You asked, how concerned should I be about stuff like that? And the answer is not very. Uh, Let me tell you why I think that is. The first part is I want to encourage you to be aware that most of the evangelical view of Revelation was basically invented out of whole cloth in the 1800s. Um, you may not have heard that before, but it's actually really good for you to know that. And there's kind of two details that are worth looking at. The first is that the idea of the rapture, which is one of the central things that goes on in a lot of um, evangelical teachings about the end times, is literally a made-up thing from the 1800s that results from a bad translation. Um, There are a a couple of verses, one really in particular, um, that a person translated really poorly, and people looked at him in English and said, that sounds like this. And then they started teaching things that are really weird that Christians had never taught before. They had never been a part of historic Christian teaching. And in fact, um, uh, the, the first folks really, really who taught those things were, were basically cult groups. Um, they've become more mainstream um, within the context of evangelicalism, but they started out at, because they were just invented based on on very poor translations of the Greek as fringe views taught by very outside, mostly cult groups. Um, that's um, you're, you're free to verify that for yourself. If you like, uh, PBS, which is wonderful, has a, a series called Frontline, which is some of the best reportage that one can find today. Um, they actually have a series about uh, the Christian view of the apocalypse. Um, I'm going to give the link to Matt, and um, it'll probably be available somewhere, maybe in, we'll the, episode put in the episode description. description. There you go. It'll be there. Um, I know you hear a lot about fake news. Frontline is not fake news. If you hear something from Frontline, you can trust it. It's good stuff. Uh, the other thing that is that is really true, and if this is new to you, it'd be good stuff to know. So the historic Christian view 
for literally thousands of years, really until the 1800s, was that the book of Revelation is about stuff that has already happened. Um, For most scholars, for most academics, basically what they would tell you is that the book of Revelation is chiefly about the fall of Jerusalem when it was sacked by the Romans in like, I want to say 80, 78, something like that. 70, yeah. There you go. Um, And then actually the official Catholic position for like a millennia. Uh, and to be clear, that was during a period when if you were Christian, you were Catholic, there wasn't any other option was that, and this was the view of people like Augustine was that revelation is about things that have already happened. That said, there are lessons that we can take for ourselves today to be read, which is, that's an understandable position. I mean, like um, the book of Esther is about things that already happened, but there are lessons that can be taken for our lives today. So, so it all makes sense. The idea that revelation is about things that are yet to come is actually a very new idea in the history of Christianity. Um, and it's an idea that is that is mostly within evangelicalism. There are literally millennia plus of tradition that do not uh, read it that way. So what does all that mean for you? The, the first is the stuff that people are trying to put on you to make you afraid um, is actually, if you look at the 2,000 years that Christianity has existed, it's a fringe position. Um, the, the people who talk about it talk really, really loud, and so it's tempting to think that it must mean something, but it, it doesn't. Um, it's, it's a fringe position that is mostly forwarded by people who actually don't know much about the subject material. For example, you may wish to know that um, apocalyptics was a genre of literature when the book of Revelation was written, um, in the same way that superheroes is a genre of literature today. If you've read one superhero story, you've read most of them. They obey the same rules. They do the same things over and over. That's the way all genres of literature work. Same thing is true for apocalyptics. The people for whom Revelation was written, the people who read it, had read other apocalyptic works. They knew what the rules were. They knew what to expect. They took something very different from this book as opposed to someone who's reading it as what is in essence an occult work. I've never read anything like this, and then I read this book, and it scares the crap out of me. That is not how it was read by the original um, readers of this book. It's not how the audience would have received it, and it's important for you to know that. But here's here's my bottom line that I want to leave you with is there's a lot of symbolic language in Revelation and in Daniel and in other places that talk about the end days. Um, there's a lot of representative language. There's a lot of symbolic language. Here's the thing we know for sure. The end of your time on planet Earth, whether it comes through your passing or through the return of Christ, what that ultimately means is you being reunited with the one who loves you most. Mm. That's what it means. I don't know exactly how it works. I don't know exactly what the details are. And the Bible is actually humble enough to tell you that it doesn't know what the details are either. The Bible's real, real clear. We don't know what that looks like. But we do know that it means being reunited with the one who made you, the one who designed you, the one who loves you more than anything in the entire universe, more than anything's ever been or ever will be. And that can't possibly be a bad thing. Mm. Um, if you were about to be reunited with your childhood German shepherd and someone told you, but you need to be afraid, that would be pretty weird because Skippy loves you. So it's just cool. We're just going to we're going to play fetch and it's going to be great. It's kind of that on steroids where. God loves you. He made you. He desires you. He's crazy about you. And there's going to come a time in the universe when you will be fully reunited with him. There is not a downside to that. And the people that are mm. trying to make you afraid are trying to get something out of you. And it would be good for you to know what that thing might be. Absolutely right. I'm also really enjoying the idea of there being like a uh, Marvel DC divide of 
first century apocalyptics readers. And like, man, <laughs> yeah. uh, Hellenistic apocalyptic stuff is all is way too flashy and commercial. Like whoever the Zack Snyder of apocalyptics was, like <laughs> we gotta give him his own printing press, man. These are these are the kind of thoughts I have that are not helpful to share during the show, but if I don't get them out, then they stay around in my brain and that's not good for me. So uh, and a really great place to start that off. Lee, I love that uh, kind of foundation that uh, Jed gave us to start off on. What do we had to add to that? Well, I think uh, the question that Jed ended with is the question that popped into my head when I first read your question, which is there's people that want me to be afraid of stuff. Why do they want me to be afraid? Yep. Um, and I can tell you this. Um, whatever you're supposed to get out of reading the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel or any of the any of the the works, any of the chapters in the Bible that that theologian would theologians would classify as eschatology, which means like the the study of the end things, is is all that means. It's a couple of Greek words smashed together, but the last things um, is the the literal translation of that word. Whatever you're supposed to get out of them, whatever you do get out of them. Why is it that someone wants me to be afraid? Why would somebody want me to be afraid of Jesus coming back? Um, why would somebody want me to be scared of seeing Jesus again? Jed laid out perfectly for us, regardless of how you read the book of Revelation and what, you, what you've gotten out of it, encouragement or hope or whatever, um, there are people that want you to be freaked out. And my experience is that when people who are in charge of religious stuff want me to be afraid, it's because they want to control my behavior. They want to be in charge of the way that I act. They don't want me to act in ways that freak them out, that make them uncomfortable, and they want everybody to act in a way that they feel safe. Um, They want to make sure that the people under my voice are behaving. Um, the people who show up at this Sunday school or the people that show up in this, you know, community group or whatever, they're all behaving. And the way that we do that is from a very young age, we make them scared of Jesus coming back. Yep. <laughs> so that is really, really messed up stuff. Um, and if there's any kind of sense that there is a certain generational divide in like making you feel like you know, Jesus is coming back. You should be afraid of that. It may be worth looking at how do I get myself into a different kind of maybe faith community or a different kind of uh, group or under a different voice? Because the first thing that you need to know about God is he doesn't want you to be afraid. He doesn't want you to be afraid of anything. He definitely, definitely doesn't want you to be afraid of him. Um, Jed laid it out perfectly for us, but a couple of other things that we have as promises from Jesus are that when he comes back, it's going to be whatever else it is and however it plays out and whenever it is, there is going to be a restoration of a society that is built on justice, a society that's built on peace, a society that's built on love, a society that's built on mutual respect. I mean, these are really, really hopeful things. Um, not only is all of the is there all of the safety and the beautiful sentiment and hopefulness of what Jed laid out for us of just the reuniting and the restoration of a of a relationship of love between me and God, but also between me and everybody else, because we will have justice and peace, and we will have 
hope and all of those things, fullness and life. These are all good things. Why would someone want me to be afraid? Because in the here and now, they want me to behave in a certain way. And that's the thing that we need to pay attention to is what is it that they're trying to elicit from me being afraid? They want me to be, they want me to have the feeling that if Jesus showed up right now today, I would be busted and I would be ashamed of myself. That's what they want you to feel. They want you to feel like I will be busted and ashamed of myself. And so I just want to say this extremely clearly based on myriads of Bible verses, Bible verses like the first verse of the eighth chapter of Romans, the 25th verse of the fifth chapter of John, and we could link these verses for you. But all of these things, the heartbeat of a ton, a ton of verses that we have in the New Testament and from other places in the Old Testament as well comes down to this. And I want you to hear me say this. You are not in trouble. You are not in trouble. You don't need to be afraid of Jesus showing up tomorrow or next year or whenever because you are not in trouble. Um, Jesus is going to usher in restoration, fullness, life, justice, peace, joy, and hope. And you, my friend, are not in trouble. And whoever wants you to feel like you're going to be in trouble wants to some, in some way control your behavior. And so those are important questions to ask. Who is telling me this? Who is making me feel this way? And what is it that they want to get out of me feeling this certain thing? And the heartbeat of it is you don't have to listen to it because you're not in trouble. Beautifully put as well. I love everything these guys gave you. One, one thing I'll, I'll kind of tackle on the end there, it's, it flows from exactly what Lee was saying there about some kind of distraction from the here and now. And I go to the end of the book of John. John, if you don't know, is the guy who wrote Revelation. Is The full title is The Revelation of St. John. Um, but so Peter's been reinstated. He's done the thing where, you know, three times he answers Jesus' question, do you love me? Jesus said, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. And so Peter is reinstated. And in one of my kind of favorite little tableaus from the Bible, because he's just gotten off the hook and reinstated from being a complete knucklehead. He goes back literally immediately to being a complete knucklehead and looks at John and uh, says to Jesus, what about him? Uh, Jesus answers, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? You must follow me. And what's so interesting to me about that, and I think really tracks what we're talking about here is um, Peter's given these things to do that are exactly the things, you know, we're given to do as people who follow Jesus, you know, to, to feed people and take care of people that he has left and to, you know, care for them. And, but to look at, but what, what's Tell me about the future. Tell me about how, tell me a cool, spooky, apocalyptic thing at the end. And Jesus's answer is almost immediately. I, you, it wouldn't matter. You wouldn't know what to do with it if I told you. Right. So why don't you focus on the stuff I did tell you? And again, um, we have all in on this show had various dealings with people who are very uh, concerned or fascinated or built a lot of their faith around apocalyptic things. And here are places I have never run into them. The county jail, yep. the food pantry, uh, the homeless shelter, the women's yep. shelter, because I'm, I'm not saying you can't read the left behind books or, you know, be real deep into eschatology and also, be caring for the least of these and be an active member in those things. I've just never seen anyone who had both. I think there is something about that 
you know, well, let's, let's skip to the end. Let's worry all only about uh, making your faith only about heaven and hell and the most dramatic thing and the being called up in the air and all that uh, really does seem to rob people of the ability to live their faith in a way that is concerned with the here and now and the very earthly things like uh, someone being hungry, someone being lonely, someone, you know, needing uh, some physical or emotional need met that you have the ability to meet. There's some, I think there is something about focusing so much on the, the overdramatic and the, the mysterious that can rob uh, your, your worldview of those things being important. And that's something that I think is a super, super dangerous side effect of all this stuff. So when you, when you ask, you know, how much do I need to work concerned about stuff like that to go back to where Jeff started us, uh, not at all. And to the point where if you get worried about it too much, it's going to really throw some other stuff out of whack. So we can probably best go out of our way to be actively unworried about it. Because if the, really the only thing Jesus says for the most part about the, the end of the world and his earthly ministry is I don't even know when it's going to happen. So as we've said in the show before, that tells us at least a couple of things. The first one is if anyone who is not Jesus says they do know when it's going to happen, they are lying through their teeth (laughs) or claiming to be more in touch with God than Jesus. (laughs) And also if he didn't really think that was a thing he needed to mention, he talked a lot about feeding poor people, a lot about accepting the outcast and embracing the foreigner and not really much about the end of the world. So I think that is a good idea of how we need to assign things importance in our own lives. And with that said, we'll move on to our second question here in a similar vein. I think also definitely worth talking about here. Second question comes in and says, a friend of mine talks a lot about demons and angels in the spiritual realm. And it all sounds kind of scary to me. Do I need to be hyper aware of stuff like that? So in in this, we do have something that is more discussed certainly in the in the throughout the New Testament uh, and by Jesus Himself than the end of the world. Um, it is has a lot of the same strands of stuff we were talking about of people of really focusing on stuff out of whack. A lot of people's vision and conception of this stuff being uh, extra scriptural might be the best way to put it. But um, and people trying to scare you. So we have that foundation. But Jed, we also have a thing where this is a little more of something that's in there. You know, demons are mentioned in the New Testament. Paul talks about, you know, we struggle against forces that we can't see. So how do we approach this in what similarities and maybe some differences to how we approach the apocalyptic stuff? It's a great question, man. And I think we actually need to begin, at least I would suggest, with more of a philosophical question than a religious question. And the philosophical question is this, is there more than what we can see, taste, and touch? In the universe, is there more than just matter? Is there or isn't there? And that's kind of a question of faith. There's literally there's a school of philosophy called materialism that basically would say, no, there is only what you can taste and touch and feel and measure. Everything, consciousness, mental states, it is, it is the result of stuff. It's the result of molecules. That's all there is. And uh, you don't have to believe the following statement, but I don't. I don't believe that at all. I I am not a materialist in any way, shape, or form. And so if there is more than what we can see and taste and touch and smell, which I firmly believe is the case, then that means that we live in a world, in a universe, perhaps a multiverse. Yeah, I got Dr. Strange on you. You're welcome. Um, Where there are not only unknowns, 
but there are unknowables. And one of the things that should be good to know that comes up in the Bible a lot is the Bible embraces the idea of the unknowable. The Bible does not tell you that you can know all things. The Bible is actually insistent, Old Testament and New, that there are things that are unknowable this side of eternity. And so what do we do if we say, I'm not going to be a materialist, I'm going to believe that there is more than just matter, and that there are things that are not just unknown, but unknowable? What do we do with all of that? And I think that the answer to that question is this crazy word called humility. If you believe that there is more than matter, which again, I I certainly do. You don't have to, but I do. And if you believe that there are things that are both unknown and unknowable, which I certainly do, and again, the Bible actually definitely teaches that, then I think you're left with humility. And here's the fascinating thing to me, and it's why I go on and on with that. It's incredibly rare to meet a person who is, to use your words, and I put this in air quotes here, into demons and angels, who is also humble. I've known a lot of people who are really into angels and demons and who's its and what's its and the the threat of Wicca and witchcraft and astrology and all this who are also humble. It's incredibly rare to meet a person who is who is both of those things, which is very curious to me. But again, if you recognize that you live in a world that is comprised of things that are known, unknown, and unknowable, humility would be the only right answer. And in fact, let me ask you this. What is in the deep blue sea? Because it covers the majority of the Earth's surface. We have not mapped a tiny fraction of it. (laughs) Well, we know Samuel L. Jackson's in there, and L.O. Cool J, (laughs) and that shark that was, I think, extra scary for some reason, but that's about it. It was the bad shark for all of, and, and I don't want to knock, I mean, I have, you know, a little bit of training in the sciences and I'm my, a bunch of my brothers are, are scientists. Like science is beautiful. And it's amazing. It's wonderful. And it's exciting. Dude, science has barely begun to scratch the surface of what is knowable about our own planet. There is so much that we don't know. And again, the prime example of that is the ocean. So the <laughs> idea that we know it all is not true. The right answer to that is humility. Yes, we want to learn what we can learn, but the right answer to that is humility. And so if you're saying there's more than I I do know, there may be more than I can know, I need to be humble, where where do I go from that? I want to suggest to you, now these are three points that I developed myself. You might say they sound familiar. I think I've heard them before. Well, you're wrong. And that's one of those unknowable things. But here (laughs) are my three suggestions. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's how you live a humble and productive life on planet Earth. Let me repeat wow, it for you. That, that was good stuff, Jed. Yeah, I'm hoping I'm going to get a book deal out of this. I think <laughs> I I just feel like it's, you know, do no, I justly. I've heard that somewhere before. You better hope Disney doesn't own that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for Lin-Manuel Miranda to write the rap version of this. Do justly, <laughs> love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's, that's the way that you do this, which again, by the way, I've known a lot of people into demons and angels. They're not really looking to do that, but I do have one more thing for you to, to look at just something to, to keep in mind as, as you think about this for your friend or for people like your friend who are into all this stuff, how much of this is an aesthetic preference? Mm. And are they willing to simply acknowledge that? In other words, I'm not like the biggest fan of scary movies. I've certainly seen plenty of them, but I have friends that really, really love scary movies. Like they, they kind of like being scared and they think that names like Apollyon or Beelzebub are like really, really cool. And that's fine. 
I've never heard, like in a movie, I've never heard of a demon named Jim. Although I think that would be kind of hilarious, but I've I've never heard of that. To the tune of a boy named Sue. <laughs> and one of the things that evangelicals in the United States are terrible at is having an aesthetic preference and then wanting to convince you that it is spiritual. Dude, do you like acoustic music that's kind of a ripoff of late 80s U2? That's great. That's an aesthetic preference. That doesn't mean you're worshipful. That's just an aesthetic preference that you have. Do you really, really like kind of like laser lights and smoke machines? That's an aesthetic preference. There's nothing intrinsically spiritual about that at all. It's just a thing that you like. That's cool. <laughs> Do you think that names like Apollyon and Gabrielle are cool? That's great. But again, aesthetic preference, nothing intrinsically spiritual about that at all. And I think it's important for you to know that both because it's funny and snarky, but also Evangelicals in the United States have a way of finding an aesthetic preference and insisting that it has a spiritual significance to it when it doesn't. It, it just doesn't. You don't have to think demons are interesting. Do they exist? Probably. Do you have to think they're interesting? No, you don't have to think that at all. You don't Jed, have to you, make it your... Are you telling me that there's no spiritual value to smoking a pipe and wearing a sweater and talking about elves? I, I am saying that like, dude, if you want to model yourself after an Oxford Don, that's cool. Go to town. But there is nothing Christian about that at all. That's just <laughs> there's it's no more Christian to model yourself after Tolkien than after Tony Hawk. Both are cool. Neither are intrinsically Christian. Stop putting your weird crap on other people. I tried to model myself after an Oxford Don, but I got very confused and modeled myself after a guy named Don from Mississippi. And <laughs> Thank you. It did not involve much tweed. It involved a lot of denim. And I'm, I'm just saying, <laughs> I think there's some value to that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Great stuff from Jed there. And Lee, where do we take that from here? First of all, there was a moment in Jed's answer where I had a deep, deep longing that Simon Pegg was a listener to this show <laughs> so that he could make a movie about a demon named Jim because I would watch the crap out of that movie. Yeah, I'm there, dude. I'm there. I think also while we still have him, uh, we shouldn't listen to things he says on uh, social media, but we still have him. John Cleese, they need, this movie needs to be made soon, and he needs to play a demon where they ask him, and what is your name? There are some who call me Jim. <laughs> and we only, that's one scene. That's the only scene we need. That can be yeah. the whole movie as far as I'm concerned. I'll give you yeah, $17 for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I loved Jed's response, and it's fantastic, and you definitely need to go with it. I, and I, I love the humility piece, and it's it's such a funny thing how little that Venn diagram laces over with with the idea of people that really, really, really love angels and demons and um, people that are humble. I've definitely experienced exactly what he's talking about um, in in my journeys as a person who believes in Jesus as well. The thing that I would add to this is just that – Yes, Matt's right. The the scriptures talks a little bit more about, you know, uh, you know, angels and demons and stuff like that, stuff you can't see that you know that people experience in different ways. Um and you know, and some of it seems scary and some of it seems kind of freaky and stuff like that. The thing that I would say is when you look at it all together, if you take if you were to just get a just if you were to find a Reddit that had all of the instances that the scriptures talk about angels and demons. And if you were just to read them all in a row, I think that you would find that the, that the, the line of best fit, if you were going to plot all of those, all of those references, the line of best fit would 
go in the direction of hopefulness for the person who knows Jesus. Here's what I mean about that. When the scriptures, when the scriptures talk about angels, it talks about Basically, the the through line there is that there are spiritual beings that you can't really understand, but here's what you need to know about them. They're powerful and they have your back in ways that are really cool and that I don't really understand how it all works, but somebody out there's got my back. and That's pretty cool. Um, the, the through line for scriptures that talk about, you know, uh, the the kind of spiritual beings that are not so nice, not so good, um, demonic beings or whatever. The the through line there is um, they've been handed a pretty nasty defeat, and they really can't do a whole lot to you, um, especially because Jesus is your shepherd. So uh, what I would say is I don't really know a whole lot about this stuff. The, the scriptural through line or the, the line of, uh, of best fit, if I was to plot these scriptures, is... There's a whole lot of beings that have my back, and there's a whole lot of other beings that can't really do a lot to me. Um, the ones that are nefarious, they, they really aren't in control of much, and that's really, really cool. I just want to lay that out there, that again, the life of Jesus, the life that Jesus gives, is a life about not being afraid anymore. Yeah. And the more we lean, lean into him and his promises and who he is and his control over the world and all that kind of stuff, we find that... You know, there's a lot of freaky stuff I don't understand about my own life. There's a lot of stuff I don't understand about my own self. Um, but I don't have to be afraid. I have somebody that cares about me. I have, apparently, a lot of cool stuff I don't understand has my back. And a lot of freaky stuff that I don't understand really doesn't have a lot of power over me. And that's a comforting thing. And I hope that, you know, if you do find that Reddit, I, I imagine that you're going to find the same thing that I found, which is you're going to find a through line of hope. Um, so let's definitely do what Jed said. Let's approach all of this stuff with a whole lot of humility, and then let's get what we can get out of those scriptures, which I think is a pretty hopeful. It's a pretty hopeful thing. Absolutely right. I think that is fantastic stuff from both these guys. And again, so much of what we said in the last uh, question applies to this, both about people trying to scare you, and also about how you know. I don't think anyone in the show has ever seen it, but it is probably possible for someone to just think this stuff is interesting and neat and not have it dominate their entire uh, conception of, <laughs> of the world and faith and Christianity. Um, but given how rare that seems to be, it's one of those things of not saying everybody's who talks about a demon or talks about angels or uh, the apocalypse is like, you know, a wackadoo we have to run away from, but it's always a thing that, that pings a flag in me mm -hmm. when a, you know, someone said, oh, I'm having a hard time. Like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And you expect, well, you know, I'm struggling with this. Like, yeah, there's a demon. It's like, um, uh -huh. is that the most likely answer? <laughs> and even if it is, to, to Lee's point, like, unless we can get Spawn or something involved, I don't know what we're going <laughs> to do about that. So let's, uh, that's right. That's right. Lee thought he'd won most strange pop culture reference to the episode with the Elliot Gould line, but I wow. counted with Spawn. I want to be clear. If you can get Todd McFarlane to illustrate your spiritual struggles, I'm interested. I want to yeah. know more. That's that's true. But undoubtedly, there's going to be a lot of cape involved. <laughs> that's yeah, right. All the cape. Yep. So, uh, it, but you know, it was one of those things. Of, so, unless we're going to go the the spawn route, um, you, you, we can't fix your demon problem. Unless there's a herd of pigs nearby, and we're very specific about something, it's not going to work. So, we probably need to conceive of these issues in other ways if 
you know, so spiritual warfare and all the whatnot is a useful way to you conceive of something. That's cool. But again, uh, very rarely seems to be helpful. And in, in a faith where we know that Jesus wants a closer relationship with you, he wants you to grow, he wants you to develop, he wants you to, to draw near to him. Things that are not helpful on that path are things we can probably uh, put aside, at least for the time being. Okay, so we're going to move on to our last little bit here. Um, I wanted to just take a few minutes, uh, as, we've, as we've definitely done over the years with the show, and uh, the fellas jump in as you see fit to talk about uh, author Frederick Beekner, who we lost this last week. He passed away um, in his own bed at the age of 96, which I'm going to call pretty much a huge win all around. Um, yeah. After having a very uh, long and successful career as an author, uh, as a speaker, a novelist. He uh, was a ordained uh, PCUSA minister, but he never actually uh, oversaw any kind of, he was never given a church. He was never actually a pastor. He was a, was a writer. And we wanted to take a little time and just uh, deeply, deeply recommend that uh, folks check out his, his work and his, his writings, uh, and it's meant a lot to to me and Lee. I know, and I think Jed has checked out some of it yep. here and there. So we wanted to just give kind of a an elevator pitch for why we think that the work of Frederick Beekner is is uh, still very useful, has been helpful to us, and why if you're at a position where you can and maybe you're looking for something to read or listen to, I think it's definitely worth checking out. And I'll open because I think it is actually very related to what we've been talking about in these last few questions. Uh, what I was originally struck by Beekner's work and have found in every bit of it I, I've checked out since then is his total fascination and picking apart of humanity. All mm. his works are about incredibly human things. Even when he writes about uh, Godric, who's, who's a saint in the medieval church, or he writes about Jacob in his book, uh, Son of Laughter, it is very much about being a flawed person, being a person who starts with no answers and ends with really not many more answers, but a little more peace about where they've gotten. And, uh, people who are really, um, emotion It's very emotional. It's very, um, searching and scraping. And he doesn't shy away from those things but all through a very interesting, and it's, it's connects with me on some level. Cause I have family like this who are, he's a, a new England wasp in the very literal sense. So, so to hear him kind of, you almost get the sense on the page that he's very much not comfortable talking about these emotions, but it is what <laughs> needs to be talked about because it is so central to what he's doing. I found those uh, super useful. Actually, something I went and looked at uh, when he might found out he passed is he's got a lot of stuff on a, his YouTube channel uh, being run by his estate of basically him doing readings and uh, speaking gigs that are largely he, he's. I, I enjoy his, his work a lot. He is not a, a, a preacher. He's not a necessarily a charismatic speaking presence. So most of the stuff is just him reading his own written work, which is still very cool. But there's one he talks about. If you want to look it up on YouTube, uh, it's, he, it's in two parts. It's called The Cowardly Lion. And it's him talking about uh, the period of his life where his daughter, one of his daughters almost died of anorexia. And it is just this, just something you don't hear in Christian media to me or from a pulpit in a lot of places because he is totally a passenger in this story. Mm. Uh, he, he gets the point where he's on the, he's talking about, I wanted nothing more than to solve my daughter's problem, but I knew I couldn't because I, as her father, I was definitely part of it. And he talks about, um, she, she went somewhere else. She lived somewhere else. And I found out 
that she had gotten the help she needed because God put doctors and friends and other people in her life to do a thing I could not do. And he, he is, uh, he puts himself in the, the, uh, role of the cowardly lion in his own story, which, um, uh, it is to me such an antidote to the seven habits of highly effective, uh, yeah. sharers or, you know, be the most, you know, be this thing and be effective and be, you know, be better than you are and, and grow in this kind of, um, self-help slash business consultancy takeover of the kind of Christian media space, both in, in literature and books and, you know, online stuff, uh, to just have a guy talk about a time where I, I had this huge problem that totally was destroying my life and I couldn't do anything about it. And here's what I learned from not being able to do anything about it. Um, something that definitely connects in a, in a big way with me through a lot of his work. Um, but I, I will hand it over to you two gentlemen. Anything you you would add? Anything you you would like to uh, prescribe? Why you think people should check his stuff out? Any th- quotes or works or anything in particular might be a good starting place. Well, um, I'll jump in. I, I yeah, I, 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 um, I like Fred Beekner for a lot of reasons. One of them, I will go back to Jed's previous uh, response. One of them is purely an aesthetic preference. Sure. And I'm going to own it. Um, I'm going to rock it. I really enjoy, I've always loved songwriting. I've always loved really good dialogue in a movie or something like that. I've always loved a writer who, I I heard somebody describe um, Charles Dickens this way one time, which is when you're reading Dickens, it's like reading a book and listening to music at the same time. Mm-hmm. because the guy was just really good at sticking the words together, um, choosing the right word and making a sentence sing. So uh, from a purely aesthetic perspective, I just love the way the guy puts words together. Um, so that's one thing. And so if, you, if you're the kind of person who you love really good lyrics, you love, um, you know, I mean, for me, one of the, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I heard on the radio the um, from a long December when uh, when he says uh, he looks up across a crowded room and sees the way that light attaches to a girl. Yeah, and I was like, that was fantastic, you know. Yeah. And so, and so, if you're a person who you have that moment where a really great lyric or a really great line of dialogue it just got you, I think you should check out Fred Beekner because. The guy was a master at just putting the words together. The other thing I would say is um, Matt one time gifted me a book by Fred Beekner, um, and it was a huge part of this book was him basically telling a very difficult story about the fact that his his father had taken his own life, mm. and um, and his he and his brother were forbidden to talk to anyone about that forbidden to tell the story forbidden to like they they had they had the family had agreed upon a different line about how his how their father had had passed away and and basically there's just a lot in that book about how much that lie screwed him up and and it's just kind of him spending a lot of years through a lot of pain and a lot of screwed up relationships realizing as hard as it is and as embarrassed as you sometimes feel, you have to tell people the truth. And it's, and, and really he leads into, in that book, he talks a lot about what happened with his daughter too, and his own helplessness and 
how difficult it was and embarrassing it was for him to tell that story. And the fact that he experienced that the way he did, and so the fact that he deals with flaws and just not being okay the way he does, I mean, that thing is so integral in the man that he became that it bled through into all of the characters that he wrote, into all of the ways that he saw so much about the scriptures, about the people that the scriptures talks about. If you've never read Fred Beekner, I'm going to give my recommendation for where you should start is a funky little book called Peculiar Treasures. It's a book that he wrote where basically it's um, he takes a bunch of different people from the Bible and writes a blurb about them. Some of them are a paragraph. Some of them are two pages. I don't think there's even one that's more than four pages. And so you can read a couple of them in the morning with your coffee or in the evening before you go to bed. They are witty, they're funny, they're tragic, they're amazing. I mean, I laughed out loud at his blurb about Caesar Augustus, and it's probably 60 words. Like, it's a, it's just amazing. Um, but that's a great place to start just because it's really easy to read. It's a lot of fun. It's really funny. Um, I, I will actually quote a couple of little things from that book. He has a, he has a chapter in that book on Yahweh talking about God. And he says, he, you know, points the camera at us for a second, as Matt says, and he says, but peculiar as we are, every last one of us, for reasons best known to himself, Yahweh apparently treasures the whole three ring circus. And every time we say thy kingdom come, it's home. We're talking about our best last stop. And, um, one other little moment (laughs) where he's talking about Zacchaeus I'm literally reading from the last two chapters of that book. Um, but he's talking about Zacchaeus, the, the guy that Jesus called out of a sycamore tree and who was climb, climbing up in a tree because he was short and he wanted to see Jesus and everybody hates him. And so they think Jesus is going to go off on him because he's a big sinner. And Jesus instead says, I want to hang out with you. And they spent the rest of the day together. And he says, this is Bigner. He says, it is not reported how Zacchaeus got out of the sycamore. But the chances are good that he fell out in pure astonishment. He said, I'm giving everything back in spades, and maybe he even meant it. Jesus said, three cheers for the Irish. The (laughs) (laughs) Then he says, this is the unflagging lunacy of God, the unending seeminess of human beings, the meeting between them that is always a matter of life or death, and usually both. The story of Zacchaeus is the gospel in Sycamore. It is the best and oldest joke in the world. Um, so not only is that a really cool picture of the way that Jesus feels about Zacchaeus and in turn the way he feels about every washed up sinner, but it's also beautifully written and funny and just that's Fred Beekner. Um, if time allows, I have one other little thing I want to read, Matt, if you're Please. good with that. Um, and this is my last this is another reason why I think everybody should read Fred Beekner because I think if you tune into the YouTube channel, like Matt said, I think most, I don't, this is, Christianity has a disease, which is that everybody appear amazing and everybody basically be the same thing, which is a bubbling, overflowing, uh, you know, fount of peace and joy and everything. And Fred Beekner was not that guy. He presents as a grumpy old man. And he, he 
he deserves <laughs> this presentation. That's the way the guy comes across. I, I say that to say this. Every single person that you encounter is more than they appear to be. Mm. They, they deserve more attention than you think they do. There's more happening in those brains and in those hearts. For every grumpy person, there's somebody who deeply, deeply loves, enjoys, and laughs at something. For every person that seems like the bubbliest, happiest, whatever, there is loneliness and pain that needs a friend. Um, so this grumpy old man wrote this thing <laughs> one time, and he said this. It was, it was, he was writing this thing about how you should basically... It was this kind of like existentialist thing of like, like sucking the marrow out of life. Like you should just approach every day with all of your fervor. And I look at this guy and I'm like, wait, is that the way you approached every day? I don't even know if you like that sweater you're wearing. Um, he says this, you are alive. It needn't have been so. It wasn't so once and it will not be so forever, but it is so now. And this is what it's like to be alive in this maybe one place of all places, anywhere where life is, live a day of it and see, take any day and be alive in it. Nobody claims that it will be entirely painless, but no matter, it's your birthday and there are many presents to open. The world is to open. And I just read that as a way to say to you, not just Fred Beekner, but like, Approach every person that you meet this week maybe with. There's more going on here. The saddest person I meet this week has more joy and more fullness than I know about. And the happiest, bubbliest person I meet this week, they have more loneliness and sadness, and they need somebody to listen to them more than I think. And that's something Fred Beekner's taught me. Absolutely right. Jed, anything to add on the end here? Man, that's beautiful. I don't know if there's much to add. I would say I would agree with everything Lee said, and I, I would add one thing, which is... I think Frederick Buechner is an antidote to the bizarre and toxic certainty that you witness mm. from so many thought leaders within evangelicalism. One of the things that has been interesting to me about my life, but interacting with people who are true experts in a very wide variety of fields and endeavors and pursuits, is that most people who have truly mastered a field or, or are in the mode of mastering it— are an interesting blend often of equal parts wonder and I don't know. <laughs> so as an example, I studied engineering in college and, and the kind that I did was what's called electrical engineering. It has to do with how electricity works. And um, one of the hardest classes I took in college was uh, on a topic called electrodynamics. And it has to do with how electric and magnetic fields work. And it's all about um, something called Maxwell's equations, if you want to Google that. But it's basically the way that these extremely complex mathematical equations that describe certain kinds of physics, the way that they kind of work in the real world. And the guy who was teaching the class was a, a professor named Alan Tafloff, who passed away a couple of years ago. He was a good man. I actually worked for him for a while. Um, he was very kind to me. And he was a not an, an expert. He was the expert globally on certain aspects of how to do the math on these equations. He, he, um, he's a big deal or was in, in that world. And I remember he was giving a lecture and there's 50 of us in this room and he's describing how these equations work. And there's a certain point and he was not in any way a religious person, but he, he stops himself and he says, it's almost as if someone designed things to be this way. And I've, I've never forgotten that moment because 
On a lot of levels, one, it's very charming, but, but two, this is how an actual expert sounds. Mm. An actual expert very rarely says, now I will tell you how it is. An actual expert knows what they know and they know what they don't know. They're able to say, here's how these equations work. That's why people give me a paycheck. But I think there are implications here that we can't quite measure. And I think the implications are profound. I think we should look at them and think about them. In my experience, that's how an actual expert sounds. Whether you're talking about electrodynamics or music theory or medicine or investing or governance, it doesn't matter. There's the sound of a person who who actually knows, who has thought this through and has recognized both the extent of their own intellect, their own expertise, but also the extent of the things they don't know Mm. and has come to some form of agreement between those two. I think the vast majority of people that one could encounter within evangelicalism are desperately in love with their own knowledge, with their own intellect, with their own thoughts. Man, they love them some them. But I think the thing that you see in Beekner, much like the professor I mentioned, is a person who is aware of its own limits. There's a a passage that he's written about prayer that's certainly my favorite thing for me that he's written. And he I'm jumping around here, but he writes, even if you don't believe anybody's listening, at least you'll be listening. Think about the sheer humility of that statement. Think about every pastor you've ever known who would desperately want to give you an hour-long sermon about he who comes to God must believe that God is. And Bigner's not doing any of that. Bigner's just saying. There's value in this whether you believe or not. There's value just because you're there and you're listening to your heart of hearts. That alone is beautiful. But it doesn't stop there. He continues, believe somebody is listening. Believe in miracles. And then he asks this incredibly introspective question. What about when the prayer goes unanswered? Who knows? Just keep praying. Mm. That is what an expert sounds like. Mm. Can one be an expert in spiritual matters? I don't know, but if anyone was, Frederick Buechner was. And that is what an actual expert sounds like. An expert does not sound like the Bible answer man who's got it all lined out, and he's got a systematic theology, and he's going to lay it all out for you, how it works, and proof text. That's not what an expert sounds like. That's what a person who wants to be an expert and is not sounds like. An expert is humble. An expert has equal parts, wonder, and who knows? That's what I get out of Frederick Buechner, and I think we all need that in our lives as something to experience, to admire, and to aspire to. I would, I would absolutely echo all of that, and beautifully put by these guys. Um, to that point of not sounding like everything else in Christian culture, again, one of the things I, I really am interested in about Buechner and his, his life is the going to a seminary, and a good one like Princeton, and, you know, becoming a, a ordained as a Presbyterian minister, it occurred to me as I was researching a little bit for this that uh, t- I tried really hard not to have many heroes in life because especially, you know, white guys and Christians and all that, it's it's a dangerous road to hoe. But two, two that I've settled on on uh, clo- closely uh, giving, as close as I would give that title, are both Presbyterian ordained ministers who never did any ministering in that sense. And one is Frederick <laughs> Buechner and the other is Fred Rogers. Yeah, uh, who was also right. an ordained Presbyterian minister who, uh, I don't think they do this anymore, but he literally said, I want my ministry to be children's television. And somebody in Pittsburgh said, that sounds good. You'd go do that. I'd be incredibly <laughs> successful at it. But I think it, we, we make fun of, and I don't know if we've ever done this on the show, uh, we make fun of in our own personal lives uh, the idea of you check someone's Twitter bio and it's pastor, author, speaker. Yep. 
Because mm. somewhere along the way, those all got glommed into the same thing. And maybe you can be good at all of them. I don't know. We talk a lot of on the show about people who are author speakers. That's how they do a lot of that. They make money. They get, and they kind of lead the pastoring to other people at the church, or maybe they even lead the authoring to other people sometimes, according to legal documents. Yeah. But uh, Frederick Beener, he was an artist. He was a novelist. He was a writer. That's what he did. That's how he experienced and talked about God. He didn't through his own thing. And I think there's something really cool in that very specific type of thing. You know, as Lee talks about the aesthetic preference, I, I was at the uh, Art Institute of Chicago recently, and I always gravitate towards the impressionist uh, wing. And that may sound like a very fancy brag, but I'm going to cut that, undercut that, because I don't know anything about art. Here's what I like about impressionism. You can see the brush strokes. Mm. Someone, this is someone made art. This yeah. is someone's, you know, br- brush hit canvas. And that's what I like about Frederick Buechner's writing. There's some people who are wonderful realist writers, and it just sounds like they're coming up with it off the top of their head, or that it just kind of came preformed like this. <laughs> that's not the way Buechner writes. Somebody wrote this, which I think is a very cool thing. We're going to take you out with a song this week uh, from a verse Jed recently uh, referenced earlier. This is Micah 6, 8 from the Pool House Guru. But in yeah. uh, instead of our normal sign-off, we're going to leave you with my favorite uh, Beekner passage. This comes at the end of a long passage at the end of his novel, Godric. The secret that we share, I cannot tell in full, but this much I will tell. What's lost is nothing to what's found, and all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. Yeah.